awesome. And that was just a taste of uh, all the excitement we got to experience here all this week. And it was such a blast. I got to be in charge of games, so I certainly had, I think, the most fun job uh, of everyone. I think I was the best station for everyone to go to because the games are pretty awesome, if I do say so myself. But, um, if, if you have a Bible with you, if you would want to turn uh, to Daniel in the third chapter, uh, that's where we're going to be today, the book of Daniel in the third chapter. As we're making our way through the book of Daniel uh, in this sermon series, I, it's this is such a good book, and... I think a lot of us, I know for myself, I've, I have a tendency to, and I think a lot of us do, think of Daniel only in regards to all the apocalyptic, you know, end times, um, things like that. Because a lot of times when people talk about eschatology, end times, I mean, Daniel's like where they go, right? This is where I get all my end time theology and, and all of this stuff. But, but really, and if you've been with us the past few weeks, I think you realize that there's actually a lot more in the book of Daniel than just eschatology and just end times. And, and yeah, that's there. He has his visions and, and his dreams. Uh, but there's so much more in the book of Daniel. And what is really sh- is, just strikes me through the first few chapters of Daniel especially uh, is just how applicable the book of Daniel is for us as Christians today. It is so applicable when we see these, uh, these men uh, of, of Israel who have been taken from their land and are and are in a land that's not their own, and they're being held captive, and, and they are forced to, um, to live amongst the people that are not theirs and that don't um, do the things, things they do, don't worship the God they worship. And just the, the struggles and strifes that come along with that. And so much of it is, is true in our lives today and something that we can glean from and learn from. So with that being said, we are going to just dive right in, and we have the text up on the screen if you don't have your Bible with you. Uh, We're going to read all of Daniel chapter 3, about 30 verses, so bear with me as we read through this, starting in verse 1 of Daniel chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits, and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar said to gather the satraps, the perfects, and the governors, the counselors, and the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had, Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and tongues, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and tongues fell down and worshipped the golden image the king Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to king Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. 
And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver, deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered, the, answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression on his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the fiery, burning, fiery furnace, Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego servants of the most high God come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego came out of the out of the fire. The satraps, the the prefects, the governors And the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own. Therefore, I make a decree... Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their house laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. And what a story we have here in Daniel chapter 3. I'm pretty sure I could read the story and like I wouldn't have to say anything or add anything to it and we could go home and be blessed today. I'm confident of that. 
but I want us to look a little bit, uh, just look deep into, into this story, specifically uh, at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and what it is that set these men apart. The title of my sermon today is The Need for Strong Knees. And as, I think it's especially true for Christians today that it's important that we have strong knees. And when I say have strong knees, I mean strong knees the way Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had, that refused the bow to knee when the world that they were surrounded by, when the culture they were in demanded that they bow, demanded that they worship their gods that they have set up. Our point number one today in verses one through seven is the demands of this world. I want to tell you guys a story of a man named Athanasius. If you're familiar with church history at all, you may know the name Athanasius. If not, then welcome to the other 90% of, of all of society who's never heard of Athanasius. But Athanasius was an early church leader who fought strongly for, for the truth of the Bible, fought strongly for the sake of Christ. Athanasius was around and growing as a bishop in Alexandria during the time of, a, of another guy um, named Arian. And Arian promoted a doctrine known as that we call Arianism, which is a heretical teaching that teaches that Jesus was in fact not God, that Jesus was not uh, had no deity, that he was merely a man, and that he was created by God. This is this is called Arianism, and it's and it's heresy. It totally denies uh, the truth of Scripture. It denies the deity of Christ, and it was abhorrent to Athanasius. But it was becoming the predominant teaching of that day, and it was becoming uh, mainstream to teach this doctrine of Arianism, to deny the deity of Christ. So Athanasius fought strongly against us. I mean, he fought so strongly that he was exiled five times for defending scripture on this matter, for defending the deity of Christ. He was exiled from Alexandria five times in his life, fought for years and years and years. He fought against this denial of the deity of Christ, that he was not merely a created thing, but that he was in fact, has been in fact with God since the beginning and always will be. Athanasius wasn't only fighting false teachers in the church, but also a government that strongly supported Arianism. He was such a, a, a fighter for the faith and such a strong defender and such an, an enemy of, of the people of this time that he actually was given, he was from Egypt and he was given the title, uh, the black dwarf because of his dark skin. That's, a, that's what his enemies called him to kind of ridicule him and, and to put him down. He was known as the black dwarf. But he struck strongly, strongly against the, almost the entirety of the church. They viewed him, in fact, as a heretic, and they viewed him as teaching something other than orthodoxy because the, the teachings of Arianism were so common and so prevalent in the church in that day and, and in the state. And on his tomb, uh, tombstone, once he passed away, was written this inscription, Athanasius contra mundum. He ended up winning the fight. Uh, because today, what we recognize as orthodox and as true and taught in Scripture as it is, was that, is that Jesus Christ is in fact one with God, and that He is not a created thing that is less than God, but in fact one with God. And the the saying Athanasius contra mundum, it's a Latin term, means Athanasius against the world, because this is how he stood. This is what it seemed that it was Athanasius versus everyone that he stood alone fighting for the truth against the world, Athanasius against the world. The same is true of the three men in our story here in Daniel chapter three. 
These three men stood contramundum against the world. As we read in verses 1 through 7, we read about the, the peoples, the nations, the, the languages that were there, that were represented, that were here to, to worship, to bow down to this idol that has been erected, that had been built to, uh, to a false god. And they were all gathered. And this is the same scenario that these three men find themselves in. They find themselves contramundum against the world, against everyone. I find it interesting that uh, in the previous chapter, we see a very different tune coming from this same king, Nebuchadnezzar. If you remember back in chapter 2, verse 47, if you want to turn there and read with me, chapter 2, verse 47, the same king that is now commanding that they, that they bow down to this thing that he has created, in chapter 2, verse 47, says this, The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings, and revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. This is after Daniel has been able to not only interpret King Nebuchadnezzar's dream, but tell him what his dream was before he interpreted it. Without having any knowledge of what it is, the Lord revealed it to him. And this is the praise that Nebuchadnezzar gives. And, and you read this confession of Nebuchadnezzar and these words that he says in chapter 2, and you think, wow, well, man, I think maybe he's converted. I think maybe he is a is a true believer, and, and I, mean, I mean, listen to what he said. Surely that's, that's a profession of faith, right? But in the very next chapter, we see something totally contrary. We see something that completely contradicts the, the idea that Nebuchadnezzar had indeed converted and that he was a believer, a true follower of the one true God, Yahweh. Though he paid lip service to the one true God, he never experienced new birth. He never experienced regeneration. He merely desired to add this Hebrew God to the long list of all the other gods that he worshipped. The same way many in our culture today want to tack Christianity onto their Facebook page just to decorate it up, and, and that's about the extent of it. Yo, sure, I'm a Christian. It says it on my Facebook page. Many of, our, many of us, even in the church, have a tendency to do this, to tack Christianity on, to tack Christ onto our lives, the same way Nebuchadnezzar just wanted to tack Yahweh onto the long list of other gods that he worshipped, but he was not a true believer. That is not true conversion. We need to keep this in mind because there's a tendency for us, there's a tendency for Christians, there's a tendency for us in the church to want to rush to, to celebrate whenever someone makes some passive uh, statement about, about God or faith or religion. We want to rush to, to look at people in authority when they mention uh, a God or a higher power or maybe prayer and think, oh, wow, well, well, surely this is a great thing for us. I mean, these people in leadership are, are, are speaking our language, right? And we're quick to celebrate these people and to set them up on some sort of pedestal and think that this somehow is beneficial to, to Christians, that it's beneficial to the church in some way. Uh, a common example of this, a recent example of this has been, uh, if you've heard in the news or seen on Facebook, a lot of people have posted about, about Chris Pratt at the MTV Awards. Now, let me say, I like Chris Pratt. I think he's a very talented actor. I think he's really funny. I've seen a lot of his movies. And I have no problem with, with this actor, with Chris Pratt, or, or anything that he has said or done. But at the MTV Awards, he received uh, some award. I think it was the, the Generation Award um, for being just one, a great actor in his generation and to his generation. And in his acceptance speech, he made many allusions to, to faith. He made many allusions to God, even said the name, said the word God in his in his message, and and said that we have a soul, and said that we need to care for our soul, and and he said that uh, no one is perfect, and he said all kinds of things that 
that we hear and we think, wow, that sounds really nice. And that sounds a lot like much of what we hear in our in our churches and much of what we read in the Bible. And and there are many that that have celebrated this and said, well, look, Chris Pratt is is a Christian and and he is preaching the gospel on the TV and at the MTV Awards. He's preaching the gospel. People have actually said that, that that Chris Pratt presented the gospel at the MTV Awards. But upon closer examination, we, we realized that, that he did no such thing. Now, he didn't say anything necessarily bad, and he didn't necessarily say anything uh, to, to fight against Christianity, although I think it could be argued that sometimes it's not helpful, but, but never once did he mention the name of Jesus Christ. Never once did he mention the reality of sin and the need for repentance. Key elements of the gospel were completely absent from what he said. In fact, there's many religions that could have heard what he said and gone, yeah, amen, brother. That's great. I think that's great that you said that. I agree with that. Now, again, I don't know Chris Pratt's heart. He may be a follower of Christ, a true follower of Christ, and I don't know. And I'm not here to judge him or to say that what he is or what he's not. But what I am here to say is that we cannot take that or anything from an from a authority figure in our culture or from anyone who is set up in our culture and take some vague reference to religious religion or, or to faith or even to the mention of God and say, oh, clearly they are, they are for the church. They are, they are giving the gospel. They are doing good. We need to be slow to celebrate Christian leaders because the reality of it is, do they really help us that much? I mean, the gospel is not, does not say that, that our domain, our, the kingdom of God is going to come through political rule or through uh, all the great people in our culture being Christians and, and pushing the gospel. No, it says that it's going to come through the church of Jesus Christ. That's what we ought to be celebrating is growth in churches. The true test of followers of Christ is whether or not their faith produces fruit. Whether their faith is demonstrated through action, as is the case for three, these three Jewish men, but is clearly not the case for Nebuchadnezzar. These three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or their previous names, Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah, are certainly put in a position that is extreme. But Christians across the world, and even sometimes in our, our culture, are faced with very similar situations. Though we don't maybe face death for, for the decisions we make and for taking a, a stance on the truth of the gospel, though many in the world today do, we still find ourselves in situations where we are expected by our culture, by the world around us, to bow to idols. It may not be a 90-foot golden statue, but there are other idols that we're expected to bow to. Our culture expects us to bow to idols of personal autonomy to idols of sexuality, even to idols of government and media. Our culture claims that it's perfectly acceptable to be a person of faith as long as we still conform to their expectations and their demands. But what they, feel, what they fail to realize is that true faith leads to action. It means we look different from the world. It means that we can't just worship God along with worshiping all the other gods that we're expected to worship in our culture. That's not the way it works. Nebuchadnezzar had no problem with these men worshiping Yahweh. 
just so long as they worshiped him and his gods as well. But faith in Yahweh means obedience to his word, which brings us to point number two. In verses 8 through 15, we see an act of, of sheer obedience on the part of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In verses 8 through 12, we see these Chaldeans bringing the, the news to Nebuchadnezzar. We see them essentially tattling on these three Jewish men to the king, envious of their position and desiring to gain some greater standing with the king. And to be perfectly honest, isn't that usually the reason people tattle? I mean, I know when I was a kid, one of five, the youngest of five kids, actually, so I did a lot of tattling in my day. Uh, I was never going and tattling purely for the sake of, Mom, I just want our family to be better. So I'm telling you what they're doing. I mean, they're doing something they should be doing. Just, I care about our family. That's what I'm telling you. No, I went to my mom saying, man, she's going to think I'm even better now when she sees how bad they are. That was the reality of it. It was never to, to make our family better or because I really cared about them respecting my mom's authority. I mean, I failed at that a lot. But in actuality, uh, these men, even though they were there to tattle, even though they were to gain standing before the king, they were actually spot on in their accusation. When we read their accusation, we, it, it's not wrong. <clears throat> you hear what they say? They say, these men, O king, pay no attention to you, and they do not serve the gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They come and they're like, hey, king, uh, these three Jewish guys, you know, the ones you set up in a position of authority that you kind of like, well, they're not bound down to that idol you set up. They were exactly right. They were spot on. That's the reason we don't see any sort of argument from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These charges come and they're like, yep, yeah, that's, that's exactly what happened. We're not going to bow. That's exactly what happened. They stand in obedience to God's commands. Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah have strong knees. They refuse to obey the king's command to bow down to this image that he has set up. Their faith is demonstrated through obedience to God's commands. This is true faith. This is what it looks like in contrast to Nebuchadnezzar. They were not merely paying lip service to their God, to Yahweh. They were following him in obedience. Their faith led to action. They choose to obey the commands of God rather than give in to any threat made by some earthly king. Though he's angry, though, King Nebuchadnezzar does give these men a second chance and tells them to bow when the music plays and reminds them of the punishment that is to come should they choose not to obey. And then King Nebuchadnezzar goes on to present this bold challenge in the second half of verse 15. He says this, And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? What a bold claim that is for this king to make. He knew exactly the God that they served. And he throws this out and says, and who's the God that's going to save you? And before we, we look too strongly with disdain upon King Nebuchadnezzar, I think we need to stop here and, and take a moment to identify ourselves with King Nebuchadnezzar. Because the truth is, the same pride that is exhibited here in Nebuchadnezzar's heart, the pride of saying, God's not going to stop this. I can do what I want. I actually have authority here, not God. That same pride is inside of each and every one of us. That is the same pride that causes us to rebel against God. That's the same pride that causes us to sin, even believers. This is the same pride that causes us to go, I'm going to do this thing knowing it's wrong, but I mean, is anything really going to happen? I know the Bible says it will, but I don't actually think God's going to do anything about this. We wouldn't say that verbally, but that's the way we act. That's the way we behave. We need to make sure that we identify ourselves 
not with the most noble characters all the time, but oftentimes with the worst of characters in the stories. Because the reality is, the gospel says we are the worst character in the story. The gospel says we're the ones that are messed up. The gospel says we are the enemies of God. But these young men have an answer for Nebuchadnezzar's challenge because they trust in the sovereign will of God, which is point number three. In order to have strong knees, we must trust in God's sovereign will, as we see in verse 16 through 23. In verse 16 through 18, uh, we see what I believe to be the highest point, the greatest point of this entire chapter. It's impossible for me to read these three verses without just, just getting chills when I, when I think about what it is that these men are doing as they stand before the king, as they stand before these nations, as they stand before the rulers and give this response to the king. These three Hebrew men stand in front of the king and the world, contramundum, against the world, and refuse to back down. They give one of the greatest professions of faith in all of the Old Testament here in 16 through 18. We're going to read it again. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered the king and answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. These three men come back with the answer to Nebuchadnezzar's question. They come back with the answer to the challenge that he makes. King Nebuchadnezzar says, who will deliver you out of my hand? And these three Hebrew men say, our God will deliver us out of your hand. That's an exact quote. But they don't stop there. It's so important for us to note what they go on to say in verse 18. I think this is one of the most important portions of this text. In verse 18, after they make this amazing declaration and and provide the answer to the king's question, they say this. But if not... Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Their statement to the king illustrates the point that that whether or not God saves them from death in this furnace has no effect on their obedience. Because their faith is rooted in who God is, not in what God will do for them. I'm going to say that again. Their statement to the king illustrates the point that whether or not God saves them from this furnace, it has no effect on their obedience because their faith is not rooted in what God will do for them, but in who he is. These men make it clear that they fully believe in God's ability to save them in verse 16 and 17. But they also affirm the truth that even though we can be fully assured of God's ability, we do not fully know how God will work out his will in every situation but we trust that what his will is, is right. This verse flies directly in the face of many of the teachings that come out of the modern charismatic movement today, such as these word word of faith doctrines and these types of, of false teachings that say that if you simply have enough faith that God will heal you, that God will take away your physical illness, that God will give you blessings, that God will make you prosperous here on this earth and you'll have money and wealth and health, And everything will be yours if you simply have enough faith. There are many of these false teachers today that if they were to hear someone in the church today say something like what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say when they say, but if not, be it known that we will not serve your God or worship this image. If they heard someone today say that, they'd say, 
you have a lack of faith. You would never say, but if he doesn't. If you truly believe that he will and that he can, then you'll say he will and he will. And they would say, well, it's probably not going to happen now because you don't believe. They would say that the Lord will accomplish his will if you declare it in faith. That's what they would say. Many believe in this movement especially that faith is some power that controls the will of God. But in reality, God's will, as revealed in his word, ought to be the power that controls our faith. There are so many problems that accompany this sort of thinking. That if we simply have enough faith, that we can treat God as some sort of genie that gives us all of our wishes. Some sort of, of, of magic vending machine that's going to make us healthy and going to make us wealthy. And there are so many problems that come along with this. There are so many today that are fighting serious illness, that are fighting uh, just all sorts of debilities, disabilities, and they find themselves in a state of depression whenever the Lord has failed to answer their prayer of being healed and of having money. And what it has ended up doing is causing more people to struggle than it is to glorify God, and it takes away from the gospel. Because here's what it actually does. When you teach this sort of prosperity gospel, this sort of word of faith, that if you believe it, it will be yours, what you are actually doing is worshiping stuff rather than worshiping God. You're worshiping the gifts rather than the giver of those gifts. I wonder what these teachers would say about the thorn in the flesh that Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 12. How he pleaded with God to take it from him, and yet God never did. Or I wonder what they would think of Job who is described at the beginning of Job as a righteous man, blameless in the eyes of God because of his faith. And yet he struggled and he had pain and everything was taken from him. And the Lord didn't relieve him from his ailments and his boils when he prayed. What would they think of him? That the beginning of the book is wrong and he wasn't actually a righteous man? Or better yet, what would they think of Jesus himself as he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane and says, God, take this cup from me. And then goes on to say, but not my will, but your will be done. The cup wasn't taken from Jesus. He still died on the cross. He still paid the price for our sins. Did he not have enough faith? No. It was God's will to do this. And Jesus can have the most faith, I mean, he's Jesus, and yet still accept that God is going to do his will. And that is the truth. And that is, is what, we ought to, what ought to be true in our lives. Many of these people simply have faith in faith, but not these three men. These three men had faith in the sovereign God of the universe. These men make it clear to Nebuchadnezzar that the issue is not whether or not God will rescue us, but the issue is that you are not God, Nebuchadnezzar. Therefore, we cannot worship you. We cannot obey you over God. And then we see the truth of what happens. We see these men ready to face the consequences for their actions. But point number four is that we can know that we have God's presence. As we continue reading, starting in verse 24, down through the end of the chapter, we see uh, these men that are bound. They are taken, all their clothes and everything, tied together and thrown into this furnace. And and I find it interesting as well that, uh, that as these men as what they could possibly be their last act of obedience to God and defiance of this king, as they are tied and bound, prepared to die, they don't die. 
But in fact, these men who are obeying King Nebuchadnezzar and tying these men together actually, as their last act of obedience to this king, perish in the fire instead. Just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the furnace, as they are there, unbound, walking around, unhurt, the Bible makes it clear that there's not even the smell of smoke upon them. In other words, God is completely and totally above the situation, completely and totally in control of the situation, and provides complete deliverance for them. But not only that, God is in the fire with them. The king looks in and sees this fourth image in the fire with these men. And for a pagan king who worships other gods, he makes actually a pretty good guess. He says, well, it looks like a, a son of the gods. And later he calls it an angel. And many debate on what this actually was, whether it was indeed an angel that God had sent. Or many believe that it was Jesus Christ himself, what we call a Christophany or an appearance of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. That Jesus, is, Jesus himself may have been in the fire with these men. But regardless of, of which option it is, regardless of what it is, it's sufficient to say that God was there with these men in this fire. It represented his presence with them in the fire. They were not alone. He had not abandoned them. In fact, God was with them the entire time. To the king's amazement, he looks in, he brings them out, and then proclaims worship again to the true God. Just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is with us, even in the fire, because of the promises of Scripture. Matthew 28, 20, in the Great Commission, he says, and finishes it with this, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. In Hebrews 13, 5 and 6, he says, for, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man, what can man do to me? This is why one of the greatest names for God is Emmanuel, which means God with us. And this is also why the psalmist in Psalm 23 says these words, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The psalmist doesn't say, and God led me around the valley so that I would never have to experience the, the valley of the shadow of death. It doesn't say that God made the valley of the shadow of death turn into some sort of rainbow, cloud, unicorn, beautiful place. It says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. The psalmist says that the reason I'm able to handle this situation is because he is in the valley with me. As believers, we need to be a people of strong knees. And strong knees come through obedience to God's commands, trust in God's sovereign will, and understanding that God is with us. We need to realize that the decision was made up in the hearts of these men long before this scenario arose, though. Before they found themselves in this position, before the king expected to bow or die, these men had made up in their minds that they could not bow to anyone outside of God. The second commandment is clear. Thou shalt make no graven image. Thou shalt not bow down or worship any other gods. Our faith needs to be so rooted in God's word and so grounded in the understanding of God's sovereign will that we do not need to weigh the options when they arise, but that we have already decided in our hearts whom we will serve, whom we will bow down to. 
I want to close with this poem by a guy named Samuel Radagast. It's called, Where'er, Where'er My God Ordains is Right. Listen to these words. Whate'er my God ordains is right. His holy will abideth. I will be still whate'er he doth and follow where he guideth. He is my God, though dark my road. He holds me that I shall not fall. Where, wherefore to him I leave it all. Whate'er my God ordains is right. He never will deceive me. He leads me by the proper path. I know he will not leave me. And take content what he hath sent. His hand can turn my griefs away, and patiently I wait his day. Whate'er my God ordains is right. His loving thought attends me. No poison drought the cup can be that my physician sends me. But medicine do, for God is true. And on that changeless truth I build, and all my heart with hope is filled. Whate'er my God ordains is right, though now this cup and drinking may bitter seem to my faint heart. I take it all unshrinking. My God is true. Each morn anew, sweet comfort yet shall fill my heart and pain and sorrow shall depart. Whate'er my God ordains is right. Here shall my stand be taken. Though sorrow, need, or death be mine, yet I am not forsaken. My Father's care is round me there. He holds me that I shall not fail, and so to him I leave it all. Will you bow your heads and pray with me? Our gracious Heavenly Father, sovereign Lord and ruler over our lives, you are ruler over this world, you are ruler over all things, Lord. God, as we read this passage, it is such a comfort to know to us that what these men found themselves in, the situation they were in, was of no surprise to you, God. You knew, not only did you know, but Lord, you had, you had ordained it to happen. And Lord, you had ordained it for your glory. God, there's nothing we can see as we read this passage outside of your glory. God, I pray for us today, Lord, not just for these individuals here, but for the universal church, your church. God, that we would be a people of strong knees. Lord, as the world commands that we bow to idols, as the world commands that we bow to to all of these things, as the world commands that we obey what they have said and meet their demands. Lord, may we not bow a knee and worship any God outside of you. God, we recognize that many times these idols are not just presented by the world, but they come from our own hearts. Lord, we bow a knee to the idols that we make. We bow a knee to idols of of television. We bow a knee to idols of relationships. We bow a knee to idols of food. Lord, forgive us of that. Strengthen our knees. May they be strengthened by your word. May they be strengthened in obedience to you. And may they be strengthened by knowledge of your will and knowing that you are with us even in the fire, God. God, I pray for this time as I've spoken primarily to to believers here, Lord. I know that there are some here today that that are not followers of you. There may be some here today, Lord, that, that like King Nebuchadnezzar have given lip service. There may be some that have a Facebook status that says they're a Christian, but Lord, they have never experienced new birth. They have never experienced a change of heart. 
regeneration. God, may you do that work in them today by your Holy Spirit. Lord, may the truth of the gospel be revealed in this place. And may you move to strengthen us and grow your church. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.